Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, is what we're going to read here in just a moment. But in more ways than one, as we have reached now Exodus chapter 20, in the story of the Ten Commandments, we have reached the pinnacle of the book of Exodus in a lot of ways. A lot, not all, but a lot of what happens after chapter 20 is a continuation of the law and the details that God gives his people. But here in these first few verses of chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, this is the pinnacle. This is what God has been doing, what he has been leading his people to. God's power and God's grace has saved his people from slavery. He has been leading them through the wilderness, through his miraculous power. He saved them from the Egyptian army. They crossed through the Red Sea, God's provided for them food and water and protection, and now he's brought them to Mount Sinai where he is going to talk to Moses and he is going to reveal his law to his people. God intends these commandments not just for the people of Israel, but for everyone who belongs to him. So when we talk about this, this isn't a history lesson. This is God giving his Ten Commandments to all of us this morning as well. He intends them for everyone who belongs to him. He intends them for the rest of humanity. They are universal, moral, and theological truths. That conversation, I think, is going to open up some interesting things for us to understand again the depth and the power and the importance and why God even gives the Ten Commandments to his people so in many ways, in many important ways, spending time with the Ten Commandments is like digging down to the foundation of the building and making sure everything is in place. If the foundation is broken, if the foundation is cracked, if we've begun to remove parts of the foundation, the building eventually will collapse. So as we go to the Ten Commandments, there's a way in which we're dealing with some of the most basic things, the basic necessary things for us in our relationship with God and who he is and in our relationships with one another. In other ways, we're talking about some of the greatest and most important truths that we can deal with. Does God exist? Who is he? What does he do from us? What does it mean for us to interact with one another in a way that loves our neighbor and allows them to flourish and makes us more like Christ? So these are big deals. And just thinking through some of the Ten Commandments before we get there and begin reading, some of them I know are very familiar to many of us. Can you just for a moment imagine a world in which people just simply obeyed the Ten Commandments all the time. Now, I know that's a great big order, but if you can just imagine the power of what God gives us here, imagine what a world would be like if everyone followed the command, you shall not murder. And that has incredible, an incredible domino effect in human interaction. You shall not murder. What about theft and stealing? What if everyone decided from individuals to governments to decide that we will no longer steal from anybody anything whatsoever? How would life change? You know, there's a commandment about bearing no falsehood, about not lying. Can you imagine what life would be like if nobody lied, if no one had a reason to lie? 
Ten Commandments are powerful, powerful things. I love this little line from the Christian author G.K. Chesterton. He describes the tension that you and I are already feeling as we think through what it means to follow the Ten Commandments and what their purpose is for. G.K. Chesterton simply said this, if you will not have rules, you will have rulers. So if you will not obey rules, there will be others who rule over you to enforce their rules. But what if as the people of God, we followed the will and the way of God from the inside out? So these are moral truths, but there's so much more. The Ten Commandments are keys to the reality of our relationship with God and our relationship with others. And all of it is established by God for us. So here's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to focus on this notion that God is the moral law giver. God is the moral lawgiver. This truth puts us in every other human being, in every other human institution, in its place and creates an ethical structure for us to follow, all of it based on the character and the will of God. God is the moral lawgiver. And then the first of what we call the Ten Commandments, there is only one God. Now, after God's display with the the, the plagues in Egypt, with God's display uh, defeating all of the gods of the Egyptians, defeating even Pharaoh and his army, God is making sure his people have this evidence in their background, this very powerful firsthand evidence that there is no God like our God. The Lord your God is this phrase that becomes more and more familiar the further we go through the book of Exodus. You will have no other gods before me is what he's going to tell his people. Getting that commandment right allows the rest of all of this to fall into place. All other false gods, all other idolatries, everything else that wants your worship tries to rearrange reality, tries to change the Ten Commandments, tries to change the life and the commandments of Jesus Christ but it's not going to work eventually. So God hands these things to us. And he alone is the God who is worthy of all of our worship and adoration. This morning, we're gonna spend time in the first three verses of chapter 20. But what I want to do this kind of first time is I want to read through all of the 10 commandments. So chapter 20, verse one, just the first 17 verses of Exodus 20, I want us to at least have all of them ringing in our heads this morning. Exodus chapter 20, verse one, friends, this is the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And the people were in awe of what they saw and heard with the giving of the Ten Commandments. It's going to take us a week or two to get through all of these. But I want to make sure we spend time with those first three verses. This is what God said. This is what verse 1 tells us. I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, or out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. So this is how it all gets started. These things, again, they represent the very core of God's commands for his people for all time, as well as God's commands and intentions for all of humanity. We're going to expand on this thought a little bit later on. I think it will make more sense the more we talk about it. But this is incredibly important the way God sets these things up for us. Either these Ten Commandments are true for everyone, or they are nothing more than one opinion among many. Either they are true for everyone, all the time, everywhere, or it's just one religion's opinion about what you should maybe possibly do if you want to. That's how these things are set up by God. So the text tells us, and God spoke these words, saying... So Moses is God's prophet. God is on the top of the mountain. We read this in the passage last week. He says, I want you to come to the top of the mountain. They're going to come close, but not too close at the foot of the mountain because I'm going to talk to you and I want them to hear me talking to you so that when you descend the mountain and you have the law with you, when you bring the Ten Commandments with you, the people will know this is not the law that Moses made. This is the law that God made. So we often talk about the Old Testament law as the law of Moses, or Moses is the lawgiver, and that's a perfectly way of talking about Moses is the individual that God used to communicate all of this, but Moses didn't create the law. He didn't create the Ten Commandments, and God said. So all of this comes from God and from God alone. Twice in those first two verses, God makes it clear, these are my commandments. This is not any individual's commandments. This doesn't come from Moses or anybody. This comes from me. 
God spoke these words and he says, I am the Lord, your God. This moment of Exodus chapter 20 is unique in a lot of ways. God speaking to an entire nation. It's not just a story of ancient mythology where some God speaks to a handful of priests or a handful of the elites or finally finds that peasant out in the wilderness that that peasant then brings. This is God talking to all of his people. This is God laying out the rules for relationship with him and the rules of relationship that we have with everyone else. And God is giving his people clear direction on how to live in covenant with him. You may remember that was important in these last couple of passages in chapters 18 and 19, that God is laying out his covenant. I delivered you out of slavery, and now if you listen to my voice and you follow my will, you will be my treasured possession. This is this covenant, this two-way relationship. So this is what God is laying out now. Now Moses, later on in his life, reflects on how absolutely unique this particular moment is. Again, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' final sermon to his people just before he dies and they begin to enter into the promised land. So he reiterates the law. He reiterates what's important. He lays it again before the people of God. Early in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4, Moses begins to, to talk about the uniqueness of the law of God. So in Deuteronomy 4, verses 32 and 33, Moses says this, for ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? This is unique. This isn't in any of the other stories that our people grew up around as slaves in Egypt, surrounded by other tribes even further back than that. No one has this story, Moses says. It is our story because our God spoke to us. He came close to us and he spoke out of the fire. And guess what? You lived. This is the grace that God gives them when he is in their presence. In that rest of that passage in chapter four, Moses continues to talk. Moses continues to talk about how this is unique, why this is unique, and what our response is supposed to be to it. So a few verses later, Deuteronomy 4, verses 39 and 40, Moses goes on to say this. Know therefore today and lay it to heart that the Lord is God in heaven. Now, in this particular passage, listen to how the Ten Commandments reverberate in Moses' language. And lay it to heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. So Moses reminds them, God, in his revelation to you, he is aligning you with the truth of who he is. 
There is no other God beside him. I don't care how many gods the Egyptians thought they had. I don't know. I don't care how many gods the Canaanites will think that they have. I need you, people of God, to be reminded that there is one God. And he spoke to you, and you belong to him and to nobody else. So the Ten Commandments are aligning God's people with the truth of who he is. And then they're doing another thing. And this, I think, will become clear the further we walk through the Ten Commandments. It is aligning our relationship with God. And then Moses says, if you obey his commandments, it will be good for you. It will be good for your families. It will be good for your children. It will be good for your neighbors. It will be good for all of you, generation after generation after generation, if you listen to the voice of the Lord and you do what he commands you to do. So the Ten Commandments are talking about what we believe about God and how God has designed us to live so that it will be good for us. This is good for our flourishing. This is good for us individually. This is good for our families. This is good for our communities if the people of God obey the voice of the Lord. At this moment, as I was going through these things, it struck me again, a complaint that I've heard, a complaint that all of us have heard one way or another about the Ten Commandments is, well, religion is just a bunch of thou shalt nots. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. This is a common complaint, and you read through the Ten Commandments like we just did, and many of them are, as a matter of fact, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But think for a moment about what those don'ts were. Don't murder. Okay, who's against that? Don't steal. Don't do these things. It actually turns out to be a rather shallow criticism of religious rules or of the Ten Commandments that all they are is prohibitions. First of all, they're not, and they're far deeper than just that. But even the individual who gripes and complains, I'm not gonna live by religion's rules that tell me what not to do, what does that individual then do with their lives? They set up their own lists of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Specifically, don't do this to me, don't do this to me, don't do this to me. A prohibition is actually one of the ways in which we survive in this world. It's one of the ways in which we learn to thrive and flourish in this world. Don't run into the street. Don't touch a hot stove. Don't, as the book of Proverbs puts it, don't pull the ear of an angry dog. Don't get involved in a land war in Asia. Just don't do it. We see this bumper sticker a lot around town. And with the growth of Satanism and the Wiccan movement around us, they claim to have really only one rule. Do no harm. Do no harm. That tends to be their bumper sticker. That tends to be their one rule. When you push on that just a little bit, all that really means is don't do this to me. Don't do harm to me. That's what that ends up being. So it's inevitable when we talk about ethical and moral and theological truths that it's going to be full of these kinds of things. The only real question is, who has the authority to command us? 
Who has the authority to give us these kinds of commandments? So here's what I want to talk about this notion. God is the moral lawgiver. And in the end, he is the only verifiable, objective, transcendent moral lawgiver for all of humanity. So it's not Moses, as critical as Moses is to the story. It's not the governmental structure. It's not the state that God builds. It's not the priests. It's not the elites. It's not the academics, the scribes amongst the people of God who have decided that these are the laws and they give them to you. It is God who is the moral lawgiver. And because God gives us his law, that makes his law transcendent. It is beyond you and me. It comes from outside of our opinion, outside of our power structures, and it lays responsibility on every one of us because it is transcendent. It is beyond us. When we say that God's law is transcended, it means it is based on him and his will, not any human beings. This means that when Moses dies, the Ten Commandments still hold. They're still there with just as much force and power. When Aaron dies, when the priesthood changes hands, the Ten Commandments and God's laws are still there and they still belong to us because they weren't based on those two guys. They weren't based on any group of individuals. They're based on the character and the will of God. And this leads us to some really important things to understand about our obligation to God and to each other. Saying that God's law is transcendent, saying that God is the moral lawgiver, tells us that this is the difference between opinion and law. This is the difference between opinion and law. If some human being or some group of human beings tells you how to live, a very appropriate response to that is, says who? You're just another human being. You're just another collection of human beings. If the answer comes down to, I'm the one who tells you so, well, then you just throw that away. If the answer comes down to, well, this is what God has told us to do, now you're actually dealing with something. It's the difference between opinion and law. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, this is the very first thing he talks about. The first several chapters of that book are all about C.S. Lewis talking about how human beings normally interact with one another, and he is building the case for a transcendent moral law and for a lawgiver. And he starts from zero. He starts from scratch. He doesn't quote any scripture. He just talks about the way people quarrel. He just talks about the way we argue. He says, all you have to do is listen to different individuals arguing, and every one of them is appealing to some kind of moral order that they expect the other person to live by. Well, that isn't fair. I shared this with you. You're supposed to share this with me. I did this for you. You're supposed to do this for me. Well, what you're doing is unjust. This is the just thing to do. So when people argue, they're always appealing to a transcendent moral order. So he says early in Mere Christianity, talking about people arguing with one another, he says, now what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. 
God's moral law is actually hardwired into the human heart. It's an interesting and powerful thing. So an actual moral law requires someone beyond our simple, mortal humanity. What C.S. Lewis lays out on those first few chapters of mere Christianity has come to be known as an argument um, about the moral law or the moral law giver. There's four, there are four pieces to it. I'm going to give this to you. We're going to talk through it for just a moment or two. Um, every now and then I tell you, you're just going to have to put up with a pastor who has a degree in philosophy. You're just going to have to deal with it. But this is important because Lewis intends this to be understood by the average human being. So talking about people quarreling and people appealing to a law that is above themselves, step number one he makes is this. There is a universal moral law. We know it's there. We know some of the basic components of it, no matter who we are or where we came from. We know there is a universal moral law. If that is the case, if there is a universal moral law, then there is a moral law giver. That doesn't mean it came from you or for him or from her. It came from someone else who is beyond us. He is the moral lawgiver. God, this person is the moral lawgiver. The third step is that if there's a moral lawgiver, it must be something beyond the universe. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of says who. It's just an opinion. Therefore, the conclusion is there is something beyond the universe. So as he makes this way, and this has become a very common argument inside of Christian apologetics, even inside of philosophical ethics, it's a very common argument to talk about how morality and ethics works. And as his book continues, what Lewis then says is that something beyond our universe is the God of the Bible. It's the only real answer to the end of this argument, to the end of this question, who is the moral lawgiver? So God tells us in the very beginning, God speaks these words. I am the Lord your God who's giving you these things. And this is what makes it law and not opinion. Continuing to think about what it means for God to be the moral lawgiver. And friends, this is incredibly important, more important than maybe we realized a little while ago. This means that government is responsible to uphold God's laws. Did you know that God holds governments responsible to his law? So if there's no single individual who can rise to the level of transcendent God and give us moral laws, there's no group of human beings, no matter how many of them you put together, no matter how much power or influence they have when you put them together, none of them can transcend God. All of them are still responsible to God as the moral lawgiver. Does that make sense? A national government is still responsible to God. Any international governance is still responsible before God. None of them replace God. And this has become a really important point for the Christian faith for a very long time. Friends, Christians are called by Scripture to honor the king, to obey the law, but nowhere is the Christian told to obey laws that try to usurp God. Nowhere are we told to do that. 
or laws that become tyrannical or laws that contradict the law of God. Nowhere are we told to obey those laws. In fact, the Christian tradition does something very powerful at this moment. And one of the clearest expressions of this recently comes through Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail, right? Once a year, everybody's talking about that, but you need to read it. Very few people have actually read that letter. It does some really interesting things. And one of the things it does is he appeals to Christian theology and scripture to actually tell people that they have a moral obligation to disobey unjust laws. Why? Because God is the moral lawgiver. What do we know is a just or unjust law? Well, how does it square with God's law? If it squares with God's law, then it's just. If it doesn't, it's unjust. So we actually have not just the responsibility to ignore it, but to disobey it. You know, that's a big conversation to have, but I want that out on the table, just so you know. This means that government is responsible to uphold God's moral law. Here's something else this means about the Ten Commandments. And this, again, I think is very important for us in our cultural context. The Ten Commandments are described as obligations, not rights. They're laid before us as obligations, not rights. What does that mean? We are not told by God in the Ten Commandments how other people are supposed to treat us. We are commanded by God about how we are supposed to treat others. This is critical because the difference between those perspectives is the difference in, this is night and day in lifestyle. It's night and day in perspective. So instead of communities of envy and grievance, the Ten Commandments build communities of responsibility and humility. Ten Commandments do some pretty powerful things for us. God actually says this as he gets this started. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I freed you. And part of the implication is I freed you and now the covenant requirement is you obey me. Galatians chapter five makes its own statement on this kind of thought. Galatians 5, the apostle Paul says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. God has freed you, so now you're obliged. Now there's a responsibility that lays upon you. It's not a demand that others treat you a certain way, it's a command that you behave in a certain way. I hope you feel how life-changing that perspective is. So friends, the Ten Commandments belong to all of us because they have been given by God and they put us in alignment with Him and with each other. There's so much going on here in these first few verses of Exodus chapter 20. What God is by His grace and by his sovereign will giving us, changes everything for us. So God says in verse three, what we call the first of the 10 commandments, 
you shall have no other gods before me. We may come back next week and include this again as we keep moving on, but I want to make sure that we get a couple of thoughts out of this for us this morning. You shall have no other gods before me. Only one God exists. Creation is full of created spiritual beings. It's full of them. But all of them are created. None of them are God. Many of them are trying to deceive us to treat them as God. So God tells his people, those gods the Egyptians believed in, they are not gods. The gods the Canaanites are going to believe in, they are not God. I am God alone, and you, my people, will have no other God. Believe in no other God beside me. Obey no other God. Worship no other God. I mean, this is where it all gets started. So if God is transcendent and his law is transcendent, then I cannot change the law. I cannot. But if I think I can replace God with an idol, then I can try to change all of this. I'll pick whatever idol I want to and live however I want to. But God's not allowing that amongst his people. So this very first commandment grounds all of the others. It makes all the others make sense. It puts all of the rest of them together if he alone is God and worthy of worship and obedience. The people of God are commanded to have only one God alone. So this is a strict command against idolatry. And the further the commandments go, we're gonna get to talk more about idolatry because this is still a constant temptation in every human heart. We tend to think of idolatry in these ancient terms of this idol or that temple or this piece of wood or this idol that's been carved and sits on the mantle or the temple that we go to. Idolatry is so much more than that. Friends, we're going to expand on this later, but I want to make sure we hear this. An idol is anything that we love more than God. Anything we love more than God. An idol is anything that captures our hearts, our emotions, our desires more than God. Then that is an idol. An idol is anything we will expect will provide for us and give our lives meaning instead of God. If something else fills that role for you, you have an idol in your heart. If something else fills these roles for me, I have an idol in my heart. For ancient people, they're represented in wood and in stone. For you and me, they're everywhere, everywhere. So we're tempted to put God someplace else. And so he begins with, you shall have no other gods before me. There is one God, and he alone is worthy of our worship. In fact, this theme continues through the Old and into the New Testament because Jesus, who is God in flesh, says exactly the same thing. Here's how he puts it when his disciples get a little bit worried about a couple of things. In John chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, in conversation with his disciples, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. There is only one God. There is only one way to the father, and it is Jesus Christ. So this theme, this commandment, doesn't just belong in history. It belongs to the church, belongs to the people of God. In the book of Colossians, in the first chapter, Paul goes on and on about the greatness and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things, he says in chapter one, in that Jesus Christ is preeminent in all things. He is transcendent and above all in all things. Jesus isn't one God amongst many. He is the only God and Christian. You shall have no other gods before you. The church is taught this. The church lives on this. The church lives and breathes on this truth that there is only one God. The early church, when you track who they were and what they did, it's stunning in so many ways. And when you read about the opposition they faced, we see some of it in the New Testament. We see a lot more of it in the record of early church history. It is an incredible thing to watch the church grow. The early church lived in a pagan culture that added God on top of God on top of God on top of God. And the Roman Empire was going to be fine with you. After they conquered you, they were going to be fine with you as long as you added the Roman gods to yours. As long as, at a point of tension, you would actually add Caesar as the son of God to your gods. And all you had to do was add them on top of your gods. You could keep worshiping yours as long as you also were able to say that Caesar is Lord as well. So it was relatively common at different parts of church history very early on for Christians to be brought before a Roman governor and given the opportunity to say, Caesar is Lord. And if you could say that before a Roman governor, they could say, well, you're not a problem to me then. And you can worship this Jesus as much as you want, as long as you worship who else I want you to worship. As long as you revere who else I tell you to revere. So when a Christian stands before that Roman governor, they risk everything when they respond by saying, Jesus is Lord. No, I'm going to give you one more chance to tell me what I want to hear. And if the Christian says, Jesus is Lord, they obey God. They fear God rather than men. They make the right decision and they risk potentially everything. This is the fulcrum upon which much of the Roman persecution of the Christians rests. We think of those images or those stories of Christians thrown to the lions, of Christians crucified in the city of Rome, of Christians who die in the Colosseum and in terrible ways. Much of it came down to this question, who is Lord? Jesus is Lord. A passage of scripture that we cite at the end of almost every one of our services is just sort of snuck into Romans chapter 10. 
But now that we feel the context of this phrase, the weight and the importance of this confession, and this takes on a little bit more meaning to us. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess it with your mouth. So now the question lays before us, brothers and sisters in Christ, what will we need to say no to in order to obey the commandment to have no other God than the Lord our God? What will we have to say no to? What will we have to deny? What will we have to reject? What will we have to just leave behind us? What tells you what you can say or think? What tells you that? Who tells you that? When you're on social media or you're conversing with friends or colleagues, who do you want to please? Of whom are you more afraid? Let that one sink in for a moment or two. What captures our hearts and imaginations? What do we find attractive? How do we want our lives to look the older we get? What do we find beautiful and attractive and compelling? It doesn't begin with the Lord your God. There might be idols in our hearts. What is it that gives us a sense of meaning and purpose? Where would we pour all of our time and treasure and talent if we were given the opportunity to do so? And do we need to say no to some of those things because they've taken the place of the Lord our God? What do we think will provide for us? Bring justice. Make the world a better place. Does it begin with the Lord our God or do the answer to that question begin with someone else? It is important that we do this work inside of our own lives so that we may obey the commandment to have no other gods beside him to be able in all circumstances to confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and no one else is. No one else is. To be able to, in the moment, fear God more than men because there is only one God who is worthy of our lives. You shall have no other gods before me, says the Lord who saved us.